So this started off as a very simple request to kind of chit chat, uh, to collaborate between um, therapiers. Dr. Laura Oyer uh, emailed me saying that she would like to just sort of bounce some ideas off me as far as eating disorders intersecting with the polyvagal theory. And I said I would do it as long as she let me record it so that everyone else could listen. And she was cool with that. So, um, yeah, we set something up. As it came closer to the date to talk, I thought, you know, it might be really good to actually bring someone on who really knows this stuff. And that is how Rachel Lewis Marlowe came into this. And you already know me. My name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and your fellow polyvagal nerd. Welcome to the first of two parts to episode 58 of the Polyvagal Podcast. Real quick warning, heads up on this episode. I think it's safe, but it's also kind of heavy in some ways and, in my opinion, very enlightening. So make sure you can hear this with love and compassion for yourself before you go deeper, please. I'm Rachel Lewis Marlowe. Um, I am in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I am a somatically integrative psychotherapist, um, advanced training in sensory motor psychotherapy, as well as about 30 plus years as a massage and body worker and movement therapist. So I come from a very body-mind integration perspective. I worked with eating disorders um, 10 years, I guess, about, um, yeah, some about around 10 years ago. Um, I started working with them in a, in a residential program and met up with my colleague, Paula Scatoloni, and we together, um, she has, has um, training in somatic experiencing, and I had the sensory motor training, and we had both been starting to develop a somatically integrative approach to working with eating disorders, very much from the bottom up, trauma-informed lens. And then we put together this model that we call embodied recovery, which is very much based on bottom-up processing around polyvagal theory, looking at the relationship between the vagus nerve, trauma attachment, sensory integration, and our digestive system. So it's a very comprehensive model. So that's sort of the orientation I'm coming from. Yeah, so I'm Dr. Laura Oyer. I'm a psychologist in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so I work right now at a community mental health center called Park Center. It's um, integrated within a, a the Behavioral Health Institute in a hospital center called Park View here in Indiana. And I have been working with eating disorders for about 10 years. I happened to just happened upon an internship um, that as during my master's degree where I needed, you know, an internship to graduate and ended up yeah, just at an eating disorder center. Didn't know a lot about the population, but just the neuroception, we use that word, right? I sort of just felt at home just for so many different reasons in this treatment center, like working there. And it just led me on this path to working with this population um, of eating disorder population that I, I just love. And yeah, and so I've been doing that for 10 years and in various different capacities, residential, intensive outpatient, now doing primarily outpatient, building an IOP program. And I think the past six months, I would say longer than that, for sure. I've just felt there's been missing pieces to eating disorder treatment, um, just the typical standard kind of what we normally would do. Um, people would get better, but it 
it's a long, hard road. And I just kept feeling like things were missing. And so over the past six months, I, I did a lot more deeper dive into trauma and trauma therapy. And I think just sort of feeling like I can now see underneath like the iceberg and have such a sense of what's going on. Um, polyvagal theory being such a theory to help with that. So, yeah, so that's what brings me today, just with lots of ideas and questions and wanting to have a good conversation around it. Laura, do you want to start off with with what you kind of had written out? Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Okay. So when I was thinking through this, I kind of was thinking, okay, maybe if I visually kind of put eating disorders as a grouping in whole and then kind of break them down into more of the, you know, major categories of types of eating disorders. Um, it's kind of how my brain worked. So um, I'm, I know I'm generalizing here, so this isn't, you know, every person's story. But in general, I think eating disorders tend to be, I see them a lot in clients who are who are highly sensitive. And so, um, you know, that's probably the one thing that I do feel pretty confident saying I can generalize is, clients with eating disorders tend to be very sensitive. And so that sensitivity, you know, I've always framed it as just, you know, whether it's kind of genetic or environmental or but just the sensitivity to to sound, to light, to their environment, to the relationship with me. Um, and so kind of looking at that through a polyvagal lens, I've I've wondered how might I change that language, right? What does that look like? Um, and so maybe that's kind of my first question thought. And we can we can all maybe put thoughts out there, but I don't know if either of you maybe just to put that out there to start with what, you know, sensitivity, polyvagal, what's your thoughts on that? Rachel's okay if I give a share a thought first? Please, please go ahead. Well, so what I went to was, and I keep me in check, please. Um, is it like a hypersensitivity or a, a high level of anxiety and awareness? Um, and to me, that feels like a very flight fight or even like panicky, like free state kind of thing um, where you're just hyper aware of, the external environment is that kind of what you're alluding to when you say sensitive like you're not talking about exactly like you're emotionally sensitive and connecting with another person but you're very sensitive to external is that what you're saying yes yeah i think sensitive to environment sensitive to internal cues sensitive like just things are felt um deeper and maybe more quickly or faster than maybe other people who don't struggle with this intensely yeah mm-hmm I think we're we're getting into the realm of one of the things that we really look at, which is sensory processing, and um, which is very very tied in clearly to the to the ventral vagal system. When we talk about sensory processing, we're talking about sort of these two sets of senses, and this is kind of coming out of the field of occupational therapy. But um, there's our far senses, which tell us about our external world. And those are the ones we traditionally think of as our sight, our smell, taste, touch, and hearing. And then there are our internal senses or our, our near senses, which tell us about our internal environment. And they are our proprioception, which is activated in our joints. And it tells us where our bodies are in space, where we stop and where we start. Our um, interoception, which is sort of just the general, it used to be focusing much more on the viscera, but it also sort of includes our whole, you know, all of the sensations internally, our tingling, our heat, our tension, you know, all of those kinds of, of sensations. And then there's our vestibular sense, which is in the inner ear. And that tells us where we are relative to gravity 
Where's up and down? What is our, our, our access point? Now, a vestibular organization is impacted very closely with the middle ear, which is one of our far senses, okay? And so these two senses go very hand in hand. And the vestibular organization is really also impacts all of the movement in our body, our sense of, you know, that nauseous feeling that we might get. And, and you know, all of these are telling us where we are, what the relationship is between self and other. Is it a safe one where the outside of world presents a resonant, nurturing, safe other, or an environment that is that lacks in some way, that maybe either isn't safe or is dangerous. Okay. Now, when we talk about the high sensitivity, okay, well, there's a lot, there's a lot here, clearly. When we talk about the high sensitivity of people with eating disorders that we often see is that there's also this sense of energetic sensitivity, which is close to our tactile sense, but it really is picking up the vibrations in the air that aren't coming in as light or sound or tactile information. I mean, it's all energy and it's all, there's a, there's a greater sensitivity to those things. There's a greater sensitivity to them, and it is transmitted through the hair follicles and then goes through the connective tissue of our body, which goes everywhere, and we are often feeling it deep in our core. So what happens for people who are very energetically sensitive is that they are picking up external information, but it is registering internally and then transmitted through our interoception, which gets to this place where it can be really confusing of, am I picking up what I'm feeling inside? Like, is it outside or is it inside? So if I'm light sensitive, or I I use this example, if I'm coming out of a dark movie theater and I come into the bright light and my eyes go into a defensive pattern, which is to like block out the sun, right? I know that that light is outside of me. And so I can start to gauge where the danger is, right? My system goes into a more protective stance against the, against the brightness of the light. When I'm picking up energy, like you know, the tension in a room, I mean, everyone's experienced that you walk into a room and you know, everybody is like, quiet and you know the hair on the back of your neck starts to stand up right well when I pick up that energy right if I don't know what I am picking up if I am not if I'm not um uh skilled in being able to interpret that information I have no idea what I'm what I'm neurocepting All I know is my body has gone into a defensive, I don't even know this, I feel my body has gone into a defensive neurological pattern, somatic pattern, none of which is accommodating to digestion. Okay. Right? But even when you walk into that, when that person walks into that room and they might see flat affect, someone in a more sympathetic state is going to interpret that as 
danger, right? Because they because it's not safety cues. It's not smiles. It's not vocal prosody. Without those safety cues, they're going to interpret that as more threatening than it maybe even needs to be. So they're already walking into that room with some sort of sympathetic danger state going on, right? Well, I mean, somebody who is maybe in a organized, in a a chronic kind of a chronic protective organization. Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. Certainly. So that's and that's the so we look at this sort of this triangle of influences, which is what's happening in our defensive system, what's happening in our attachment system, and what's happening in our sensory processing system. Because they all impact each other. If we are in a defensive posture, at first, what happens when we're in the sympathetic, as we start to, to, to go up in activation or in arousal state, our senses become heightened but not coordinated. So we may be some senses are really heightened and others are dulled, right? And we go into a defensive posture, right? Or a defensive orienting as opposed to exploratory orienting. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of what I was, that's where I kind of went to when you, when you talk about hypersensitivity and I went to like hypervigilance and being like your body is prepared for danger, whether it's not a stare, but you're just kind of like, I think you had said it earlier, um, Rachel, that um, you, and I forgot the word you used. It was so beautiful. It was perfect, but it was kind of like you're you're already prepared for it. Your body's already in a defensive organ. Yeah. There, yeah. Thank, yes. Oh. Yeah. Or, yeah. There you go. Yeah. And so yeah. when I hear hypersensitivity relating to polyvagal theory, to me that those things kind of go together. I think it can, but it doesn't have to. I guess that's that's the thing is that you know we when I work with people with eating disorders and I, they, they are almost always told, Oh, you're too sensitive. You're too sensitive. You're too sensitive. Right. Or you're so sensitive. And, and the damage often is not so much that what they are neurocepting is not, or they're, what they are experiencing or, or, or sensing lands as danger, right? They aren't necessarily neurocepting danger, but what they do end up experiencing is um, threat to their attachment system just because they are sensitive to things, because they are saying there's something going on here, or they are feeling things very strongly. And it is not what they are feeling, but the response to the fact that they're feeling things that becomes the threat. And so they, they end up having a very um, negative relationship with their own superpower. The response to, so other people's responses, is that what you're saying? Yeah. So for example, if someone has a really, really good ear for music, you have a child who has perfect pitch, right? The response is, let's get the music lessons. Yeah. It's right? encouraging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. For somebody who is energetically sensitive, the response is usually, you're making it up. It's like Harry Potter being raised by the Dursleys. <laughs> right? Like if, the rejection and the judgment. and Yeah, yeah. Like we don't like understand go away. what's going on. There's something wrong with you. And so they, they rather than, oh my gosh, you have this, you have this superpower. Let's give you 
um, you know, someone to help you know what to do with it so that you can start to recognize energy and see energy boundaries and fields and establish skills to go with this capacity. Well, and I think Rachel, to maybe jump in there, I think, I think that fits so much. Um, and I actually once had a client in a group and she, I remember her saying like, we are the truth tellers in our family. And I was like, Oh, that's so brilliant because you really are, you know, it's kind of like the, the emperor's new clothes. Like they're the ones saying like the emperor's naked, <laughs> you know, and, and everyone's looking around like, what? Like, no, 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 no. Like, right. Like what, what you're thinking, feeling, experiencing, like for whatever reason, we can't, we can't acknowledge that we can't build that we can't, you know, it's, there's something maybe threatening about your being threatened. And right. so I need you just to stop. Right. Exactly. And so I think that fits very much. Very yeah. Much. And they are picking up all of the stuff that nobody else is taking ownership of and they're feeling it and they're feeling it all the way through their body straight into their gut. And because there's no one helping them get an act, helping them at a, at a point in time when what they need for regulation is co-regulation, right? This is happening from often from birth, from conception, right? prenatally it's happening early on and they when we don't have the the neurological capacity for self-regulation that ventral vagal nerve is not myelinated we are relying on other people to to help us regulate but rather than that we're getting nothing or shame right at, at best nothing at worst shame shame and rejection do both of you find a consistent pattern or theme of a lack of co-regulation in the clients you work with? I do. I do. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, not every client across the board would I say lack of it, but I would say some, some of the clients who maybe do have more positive co-regulators, they're, they're very quiet and over-regulated themselves. And so they're not reaching out trying to get the co-regulation or I've had some parents say, I had, I had no idea. Like, they acted like they were just fine. And I honestly had no idea where other, yeah. other parents really were, you know, very their own, they were, they, they themselves couldn't co-regulate, couldn't regulate themselves. Right. Probably had, didn't have their own co-regulation. Therefore we're not strong co-regulators. So for me, I, I see that a lot. Yeah. And a lot of times it's that there's not a real understanding of the, 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 what is needed for regulation, right? They may, parents a lot of times will come in with what the, what they know how to do or what they have to offer. But when you have these systems, these neurologic ner nervous systems that are very delicate, some of them, the, the instance of birth trauma is pretty high. You'll see a lot of people who have had some kind of, of traumatic birth experience, which is already going to be challenging their nervous system, their reflexes have not been fully integrated. You know, and this is actually particularly true for kids who may present, oh, they're such good babies, they never cried. Well, that's because they were mostly in a dorsal state, right? It wasn't because, and, and a lot of people are confusing calm with regulated. Right. Calm is not regulated necessarily. I mean, it can be, you can be calm and regulated. I don't want to say it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Yeah. And so, so there is often a, a, a 
um, deficit, I would say, in that attachment system that is needed for full myelin full myelination of that vagus nerve, the ventral vagal nerve, you know, to, to really get up and running and be robust. I was going to say, I wonder if that would be maybe a good place to jump into a little bit more about the digestion part of it. I know, Rachel, you, you mentioned that, and I know that was something that um, I think has really hit me a lot more recently is thinking about the polyvagal theory, how the sensitivity and, you know, these continuous cues of danger, if we want to call it that, you know, what, whichever is kind of coming in, whether it's internal, external, and how, how that does impact digestion so much. And I think in my in my past, I think other therapists, specifically eating disorders, would say, well, that's just your eating disorder. That's just your eating disorder. You just don't want to. You just got to, you know, combat that eating disorder voice. And it felt very, felt very um, like, not very compassionate. And I also don't think it was very validating of the actual physiology that's happening for them. So, yeah. So I'd love to hear, Rachel, your, your thoughts on that piece of it and how you work with that. Yeah. Um, that's one of the, the main things that we work with in the embodied recovery approach is, you know, traditionally eating disorders are, are understood or conceptualized as this is, these are behaviors that come from someone's thoughts about their body. Yes. Right, 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 right. right. And we take that and flip it around 180 degrees and say, no, actually the Eating disorder is the body speaking about safety, attachment, you know, danger, attachment, and, and sensory processing, you know, what we need to survive, what we need to thrive, and how we make sense of the world. And so what we have to do is rather than try and quiet the eating disorder voice is to listen to it and understand what it's saying because it is the body expressing specific organization around attach a lot of it is attachment it's not just the perception of threat it's the absence of the perception of of safety um that that seems to really be impacting the eating disorder that is what we need. The danger can be gone, but if the safety isn't there, we don't have the ventral vagal engagement, which is what we have to have in order to have digestive capacity. So we have a couple of the core pieces of a lack of attachment, a lack of ventral vagal activation because there's no co-regulation, there's no healthy attachment, there's no or no attachment. And we live more down the polyvagal ladder in a, def- in a defensive state. Um, so we have those pieces but how do we go from that to eating disorder? You know what I mean? How does that become someone's, and I, I'm conceptualizing it as a behavioral adaptation to self-regulate, and tell me if I got that wrong, but how, how, does the, how do these pieces, how does someone go to an eating disorder when we have these core pieces in place of attachment and being more down the polyvagal ladder? And Well, and I, and I wonder, Justin, for me, like when I hear you saying that, one of the thoughts that come to mind is, um, when I kind of, the outline that I put together, maybe my, my wonderings was, it seems more like when we're in that sympathetic state, I think a lot of people do initially feel like they lose their, their appetite. Like they, they, they are not hungry, right? They don't really feel that. And then I would say that's also, I think sometimes present, even that dorsal vagal shut down, just like 
the gut's not working. Like it's just, there's, there's discomfort there um, just in my experience. And so it's almost like that almost feels like this physiological reaction that's happening. And then it's almost like maybe the not eating part of it, if we're going to talk more about maybe the restricting behavior, it's like that, that starts there, but then it's sort of like, it continues to keep going for various reasons. And the various reasons might be those more behavioral adaptations possibly. Um, and then some of the other ones where if you think more about the eating to, you know, and again, this is where we can kind of hypothesize and I'd love Rachel's thought, but maybe eating turns on the vagus nerve, right? Does maybe it does do something there physiologically, which does create more soothing and regulation of the system. So Hmm. yeah, I guess it's kind of the both and like, is it, is it, is it a body response? Is it, is it more of a, a way of regulating? I'm not sure what the difference is between a body mm. response and a way of regulating. Mm-hmm. I think one would be, I, I would say maybe more the intentionality of, of one is like, it's just happening versus one is like, okay, I'm intentionally doing this because I, I know this helps me feel better. Um, like a choice kind of, you mean? Yeah. I put that in air quotes choice. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say from, a, you know, I, I, we can, one you're talking about is sort of bottom up and the other is top down, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that, I, I, get, I think my bias is that we start as sensory motor beings. We start to learn what is, um, what is true in our world and we learn to make meaning of that right? Through, through, you know, our external meaning makers, right? Which are, are, you know, we, we are borrowing a ventral vagal nerve, a frontal cortex and, and a storyteller from, from our attachment figures. And whether those attachment figures are, our our immediate caretakers and eventually they become our, our attachment figure becomes our peer group, our society, you know, every, every time we reemerge, into a new identity, we have a different attachment figure and we are going through that same process of identification of self again and again. So that doesn't really answer your question, (laughs) Justin, so let me see if I can circle back. Um, How do we get to an eating disorder? You know, part of it has to do with, it's the conditionality of attachment, not that there's a lack of attachment, but how much of who I am can I bring into the world? And so we think about this from an embodiment perspective, okay? That's why we think about it, why we call it the model embodied recovery, is that, um, you know, how much of my attachment system am I embodying? How much of my defensive system can I embody? How do I embody my sensory integration, my sensory processing system. So it is a combination of all of these things that's going to impact my relationship with, with human beings and with food. We are mammals. And so our ability to nourish ourselves, you know, physiologically and emotionally and relationship relationally, it's all neurologically based or or all all neurologically Linked is what I should okay. say. When, when you, I, I want to get clarification. When you say embodied, does that, I just want to make sure I understand and my audience understands what that means. Is that what referring, is, yeah. 
just to like be mindfully being present within yourself and kind of what's happening within yourself and tell me did I get that wrong? No, no, that's part of it. So our working definition of embodiment and, and people have different definitions of it. So I'm glad you asked. Our definition of embodiment has sort of two parts. One is that we can be aware of our body, right? Okay. Our physical, our, you know, our physical structure, our anatomy, our movement impulses, all of those, those sort of three places that we, we have our movement, our five sense perception, and our internal sensation. So we have to be able to be aware of it. But the second part is to be able to be aware from our bodies. And what is it to be not just like aware, let's say we can even do a little experience. It's like, I can be aware of my hand and I can see it and I can go, oh yeah. But then I can also be aware of the world through my hand, through touching something, right? And so I can be aware of the world outside through my eyes. I can be aware through my fingertips. That's such an interesting elbow, way of looking my at things. Nose. That's different. I'm, I'm, I know I keep interrupting. I'm sorry. No, go on. No, that's fine. Because fine. because we in the, the way the way you're wording it, it's, it's a little bit different. But the way I've always perceived it, or the way we talk about it, is as, as if we get these sensations and then we perceive it through here. When you're saying no, we're perceiving the world through the hand. Period. Is that accurate? We're per- we perceive through our senses. So here it would be right. the sense of, of both touch. Okay, so if we press into something very lightly, we're activating our touch receptors. If we press firmly, we're getting our proprioception, right? So, t- so we're getting both other and then self, and other and self. And if that, if there's not a real good integration of that, right? This is where we get body dysmorphia and body image distortions, right? If my visual, the visual input is not congruent with the messages I'm getting internally of my body and from my body, I'm going to have a difference it's not going to line up. There's going to be a distortion there, right? And we all have had this. It's like, to some extent, like you have a cold, you know, and you look yourself in the, in the mirror and you don't, you know, it's like you see your face differently. It looks different, you know, but you probably see it more differently than it looks because the information you're getting from the inside, you're pairing with the information from the outside. For people who maybe have low registry of of their proprioception, meaning they need a lot of input to know where their body is in space, they may feel amorphous and huge because they have no idea where they end, right? Which is in and of itself going to be dysregulating because you're... Like, but that's body- the internal... like. Per- is perception the right word? That's the internal yeah. experience of it, their body is? is Yeah, like they have no idea where, where, where their body is, right, in space. So on some level, they have no idea if a bear just hasn't ripped off their arm, right? It, it doesn't feel attached. And that's going to build a kind of a chronic state of 
dysregulation, right? Because I don't know where I am in space. And I have no idea, you know, where I stop and start. And that, that's what I'm feeling on a sensory motor level. But that also may be what I'm starting to experience on an interpersonal level. I don't, I don't know that the, the, the furrow in your brow has nothing to do with me. Because I don't know that we're different. I don't know where I stop and start. Now, if I have a, a very healthy boundary caregiver, I can at least, you know, get some help with that. But if I maybe have, you know, experience with a, a society, let's, let's take it outside the realm of just your individual caregiver, but, you know, like a society that is telling me what I'm supposed to think about myself and I can't tell the difference between, you know, you know it, then my sense of self and safety in the world is, is kind of chronically off. Right? I don't know how to bring my authentic self into into the world. I don't know how to embody. And anyway, I mean, there's there's a, clearly a lot that goes into this, and you know, like three days is what we usually do to introduce people to the model. So I don't want to like bombard this is fascinating. you with, with information, but it's mostly to say, I, Laura, you're on the right track. I mean, like what you're seeing, because uh, what our model came from exactly those same observations. That was like, okay, there's something missing here. We are not addressing the bottom up driving force, right? We know who we are and what is acceptable long before we have language, right? Our attachments, the rules of what we have to do in order to keep someone close to us and whether or not it is safe for me to be an embodied soul in this world art can be established within the first year of life the first six months of life sometimes we get that initial sensitivity you know and how do i be a sensitive being in the world is this world a safe place for me as a sensitive being and so that's the foundation. We then may learn how to compensate and navigate, and that will work up for to a certain point until that that system is just sort of maxed out. So a lot of times what we're seeing, I don't know if you're familiar with the term the faux window, right? Steve no, Terrell no. and Kane talk about that. Other people have, have used the term as well. You know, the window of tolerance, right, that kind of goes with the idea we can overlap polyvagal and the window of tolerance where the ventral vagal is in that window of optimal arousal and above is the, the sympathetic and below is the dorsal vagal state, right? Well, there's, there's, there's something that we can call the faux window, which is where it's like we can, we learn how to adapt to make it kind of look like we're regulated Right. So what we're really seeing is an incongruency and it is being driven by, um, you know, this is where we've got the gas and the, and the, and the brake on at the same time. It's a more functional freeze where we are willing ourselves and we're following rules and we're doing that to keep from going all the way out 
in either direction. Polyvagal patrons, let me know what you thought of this episode and the members episode in the Patreon comments. And dear listener, I know I'm sorry I had to cut this off, but part two is absolutely well worth the interruption. If you're like me and you must have more Polyvagal Nerd content, sign up for my Patreon for $5 a month. There's hours of more content on the Polyvagal Patrons podcast. And you can share your thoughts with other Polyvagal Nerds in the comments. But I just added a new benefit and it's my favorite one. When you sign up for 5 bucks a month, I will drop anything I'm doing and send you a video thanking and welcoming you. Okay, well, okay, maybe not anything, but you get the idea. I got a notification tonight that someone new joined while I was taking out the trash for the week. So that person got an exclusive look, an exclusive look at my garage. <laughs> so it, that's probably not something I'll be showing uh, ever again. But I think it's a really fun little part um, just to say thank you and welcome people to the Polyvagal Patrons podcast over on Patreon for five bucks a month. All right, that's it. Uh, make sure you catch uh, part two. It's really good. Bye.